1: Welcome to the new episode of the Needless Things Podcast and let me tell you something phantomaniacs, finally I have managed to get a toy creator on the podcast. This has been my goal for a long time. I would love to start a string of interviews with people who have worked in the toy industry, but holy cow, did I have no idea I would start so big. Today's guest is Tim Clark. If you don't know that name, that's okay. I didn't know it either until he left a note on my Instagram uh, on a Boglins picture of mine. And it turns out that Tim Clark created the Boglins, uh, created Sectors, and also worked on The Dark Crystal, The Muppet Show, Fraggle Rock, Sesame Street, and many other Henson uh, things. He is a puppet designer, he is a toy designer, he's a very creative man, uh, and he also you're going to want to go to Totems.com, that's T-O-T-I-M-S.com, and check out his line of designer toys that are absolutely incredible. Uh, everybody knows that I'm a cheap ass, and uh, I buy, you know, regular toys, but I'm always tempted, uh, or not always, frequently tempted by the world of designer toys i'll see something that catches my eye and i'll think i could spend 100 bucks on that and mr tim clark has designed some really awesome uh, totem tiki monster inspired things that, that you have to see to really understand what they are. So go to totems.com and check that out. Uh, and I would also remind you, as always, to go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, and find the Needless Things podcast. It's there, just waiting to be listened to. All This is the 25th episode, so all 24 other episodes are available. Uh, ex- actually, except for the first episode. I'm working on that. That's going to happen soon. It's, it's going to be re- released, uh, remastered. It's not going to be remastered. I'm just talking out of my ass now. Uh, But anyway, I was very excited to, to hook up with Tim Clark, and we set everything up, and we recorded, and I'm always nervous going into these things, because... You know, we we actually had a, a conversation before the podcast. Uh, he had me call, give him a call on the on the old telephone, which is something I've not done before, and which honestly I was like, this this guy's just giving me his phone number to call him. That's wow, I, that was uh, kind of wild to me. So, but I gave him a call and we had a good little conversation for a while. So I knew he was friendly and easy to talk to, uh, but I was still you know going into an interview like this especially one with with as much personal significance for me and for Bo uh as this one had you get nervous you want to be sure and and be respectful and be funny and be friendly and and also hit all the points that you wanted to cover going in which is something here's here's a podcasting behind the scenes secret uh people that you never cover everything it just doesn't happen every single episode i send out show notes uh, about what we're going to talk about and if it's something you know now if it's a review of a movie or something like we just did with godzilla in the last episode that's a different story obviously we're just going to sit around chat about godzilla blah 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 blah. whatever it doesn't matter but if you have a guest that you're interviewing Uh, You send out the show notes, and you say, okay, we're going to talk about this, 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 and this, and it never, ever happens. There's always stuff that you miss because it's a conversation, and I want it to flow naturally and just happen in a natural way. I don't want to cut somebody off of a great story because I feel like that I need to talk about this other thing because the other thing doesn't matter. What matters is the conversation and, and how we're interacting, and that's what's interesting to me. So... That's stuff you probably didn't need to know, but there it is for you. Uh, I hit the iTunes and the Stitcher. I also want to mention, big, big, big things are in the works for Dragon Con. There's one thing that I think I'm okay to mention. Uh, I'm not going to go into too terribly much detail, but me and very special friend of the show, Miss Lady Flex are hosting something at Dragon Con. I can't say any more than that. Uh, it will be with my pals, of course, uh, the American Sci-Fi Classics track. I don't want to say too much else. It's 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 a done deal, but until things are a little more concrete, I don't want to get... You know me. I'm paranoid. I don't even like announcing guests until the podcast is recorded and like posted. So I'm just going to say that me phantom troublemaker and miss lady flex will be hosting something that you do not want to miss this year at dragon con uh i can also tell you it's not sunday night so there you go there's a tidbit uh... and now you know let's go ahead and get down to business because I, I was really excited about this one i'm really excited for you guys to hear it and please share this thing if you enjoy me if you enjoyed needless things if you like Tim clark share this episode with your friends pass it around the internet uh, because the more attention I get, the more likelihood that cool guests like Tim Clark will say, Hey, Phantom Troublemaker, we'd like to talk to you about making toys. And and really, that's what I want. So let's make that happen. And now it's time for me and Mr. Bo Brown and Tim Clark. Yay! That was my terrible Kermit the Frog, even though Tim didn't actually have anything to do with Kermit the Frog. But he did have something to do with this! Psst, over here. I'm a Boglin. Me and my buddies need a place
0: to hide out. <laughs> Come a little closer. Oh, did I scare you? Oh, I do that so well. If you take us home, we'll kiss your Aunt <laughs>
2: We'll eat your peas. And we hope you know lots of girls. Hey, the
0: name's Boglin. You sold separately, and we're looking for good homes. Maybe yours? <laughs>
1: Hey, Phantomaniacs, and welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast. Uh, we've got a very special treat tonight. Uh, we, we always have very special treats for you guys, I like to think. But uh, at long last, I have been able to start down the road of talking to some folks who are involved in the toy industry. Uh, and tonight's guest is oh so much more than that. Uh, I feel very fortunate that uh, th- this is quite a score as far as I'm concerned. But before we get to that, I have to introduce my lovely co-host, Mr. Bo Brown. Bo, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. It's a busy time uh, of year,
2: but, but you know.
1: Right, that's what I was going to ask. How's your Dragon Con prep going?
2: Dragon Con prep's going okay. Um, it's, you know, it's a different ball game this year, so all the security that I, that I got last year from sort of, like, it being my second year and, and knowing what I'm doing, I foolishly changed the scenario big time and so I I kind of feel like I'm almost back to my first year of of sort of going like oh gosh I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing um but everything's everything's coming together there's there's been some stops and starts but um it's it's looking you, good
1: You've got to keep it exciting you don't want it to get stale no no you you've got to keep that horrible stress and tension yeah.
2: the you uh, know the yes the uh nerve-wracking Soul-shattering stress.
1: <laughs> uh, well, uh, glad to do, Glad to know you're doing all right. And uh, now it is time to speak to our guest for this evening. Uh, that would be Mr. Tim Clark, uh, who I met on Instagram of all places, uh, thanks to a photo of a Boglin that I put up. If you guys don't remember, uh, Boglins were puppetry-oriented toys that came out in the late 80s and uh, the 90s, I believe, over in Europe. And uh, and they were in, in America here for one or two series, but Europe really got a glut of Boglins, which we'll talk about. And none other than Tim Clark, who is one of the people responsible for the Boglins, uh, made a comment on my picture and I said, hey, want to do a podcast? Because that's how I do things. And now I am very pleased to be able to say, Mr. Tim Clark, welcome to the Needless Things podcast.
3: Thank you very much. Uh,
1: what? What a! What? A, how did you come across my picture? Was it the Boglin hashtag?
3: Yes. Uh, okay. Just because uh, my, my daughter had gotten me into the idea of looking at uh, Instagram, and um, she said, "Daddy, you really should be start posting some of." your your creations on here because I know a lot of people who are interested in the background of the toys that you designed and invented so I did and then I I was just she she showed me look at all these people who are posting stuff about Boglins and I was shocked to say the least cuz <laughs> I mean it hasn't been around in a long time so the fact that it still maintains such a strong fan base uh, especially in the U.S., it, it just amazed me because it was only out as a toy uh, like two years here.
1: Well, it's I think it's a lot to do with the concept of they're actually toys. There's a lot of interactivity. They they look very memorable. And if the listeners aren't familiar, uh, first of all, you need to Google Bodwins, but they're they're hand puppets of little goblin creatures that you can put your hands inside and they've got a a very ingenious device that moves the eyes and the eyebrows around the mouth moves. Uh, And then there were smaller ones that were simpler puppets. But the whole point was, it was really a toy that you could play with and it had such a memorable look. Uh, The line did. I, I think that's why people are still remembering them now. Cause I know anytime I'm, I'm at a convention and I see a vintage toy dealer or something, it's always exciting to see that, that box with the cage design.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was it a was great package. That's for sure. Yeah. The package really <laughs> stood yeah.
2: out on the shelf. I remember.
3: Uh, actually Dwayne Langenwalter, who was my part, um, not my partner, but um, Maureen Trotto and I um, brought Boglins to the market through Seven Towns, who was our agent at the time, and her husband Dwayne Langenwalter um, designed that box.
2: Very great. I mean, it, it shows off the it shows off the product inside the box really well, but then also I think gives you like a real, um, a real sort of experience of the interactivity of the toy.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing that you know Mattel actually went through with the idea of. Letting kids play with it in the box—I
1: yeah. mean, that's
3: unheard of now.
1: <laughs> yeah, and well, and you also don't get packaging that uh, nice and interactive and complex now. You know, the little cage bars actually—you know—were functional and everything. Yeah. Like it, it, you didn't throw the box away. You kept yeah. the box to keep the boggling in. Well, you don't want it
2: sneaking around at night, do you? Absolutely not. You need that's to lock that thing gosh,
1: up. Good gosh, no, you don't. <laughs> I, I remember my sister was terrified of those things. Oh, yeah. And when we first found, because the the, uh, the one that I posted uh, was the Jack-O-Lantern boggling that was part of a special series. And my son, when we first found that, because my brother-in-law gave that to me uh, from his own collection, and, and my son was terrified of it. But now he knows that he can work the mechanisms, and he's excited that we've got it. So it's it's one of those things where we're going to end up having to track down more Boggleins at this point.
3: How old is he? He's six. Oh, great. Yeah. He's the yeah. perfect age.
1: Absolutely. He's he's really starting to get into kind of the more esoteric and weird toys. Matter of fact, we just watched, uh, and this will be a nice segue, we just watched Dark Crystal oh, wow. uh, for the first time the other day. And he's six? And he's six. How'd that he go? He room. He. There were a few parts that were a little heavy for him, uh, but he's so because of how he's been around my toy collection and all the different things that, that I have, I mean, he's seen Pacific Rim. He, he's into monsters and... I guess constructed things. He, he loves mm-hmm. the idea of marionettes and puppetry and toys and how all of those things kind of work together.
0: Mm-hmm. So his
1: interest in seeing that on the screen kind of outweighed the creepiness, but there were a couple of parts where he was, he was putting his head away. You know, uh-huh. it was, there, there was, I'm there thinking.
3: was some, my kids would yeah. watch it for years. I, I don't yeah, think it, they, they actually saw the whole thing till they were in their teens.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think it'll be a while before he he just sits down and really watches the whole thing. But I think uh that's
2: pretty uh, standard across the board for people's Dark Crystal experience, I think, is that they yeah. do they do see it when they're young and then it's kinda like there's a lot going on and it's you know and it's and it's so alien, which was the point, you know.
0: Right. But it's yeah.
2: so alien that people that the kids have a hard time maybe wrapping their brain around it. and then they come back when they're when they're like, Oh man They're like, Oh, I remember watching all, I mean I've heard that Several. I remember watching one as a kid, but I don't remember ever sitting down and watching the whole thing. Yeah. And then you go back in your, you know, teens or whatever, and you watch the whole thing, and you're like, oh wow, you know.
1: Well, and what's interesting is I was six when it came out, so and uh, it was one of the movies that my mom took me to the theater to see. She was really big and, and taking me out to the movies, and it's funny to think back about some of the things I saw that I was probably a little too young to see, but I remember seeing this thing in the theater and being absolutely terrified the whole time.
0: <laughs>
1: but uh, it's 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 such a wonderful thing, and there's cert- it's one of those things that you want uh, to be part of your kid's growing up experience.
3: Right. All right well, so, I'm glad to know that I, that I scarred the Phantom for life.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It wasn't the Mystics that scarred anybody. <laughs>
1: I, everything about it, though, it it, it does like you said, Bo. It has that wonderful. It's so alien from yeah. anything else. So everything in it, even though the mystics are are gentle and and you know to a certain extent the heroes, they're alien and different and weird, and everything yeah. about it is a little uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but so with that, uh, Tim, you worked on Dark Crystal, but there's oh so much more. Let's, I don't want to leave anything out. What's a brief, just sort of a rundown. What are we talking about tonight?
3: Um, well, let's see. Uh, when I was in my senior year at Pratt Institute majoring in art education, I took a class with Kermit Love, who is the guy who designed Big Bird and Snuffleupagus for Muppets. And Kermit was also a very well-known um costume designer for mostly for ballet companies he worked with primarily with New York City Ballet and with Joffrey and um, his class was you know for obvious reasons very hard to get into and uh, you couldn't get into it usually till your senior year and I got it in got into the class in my last semester of my senior year and I started you know just going crazy building all kinds of puppets from a crab to a penguin to an, you know, like an eight foot long uh, dragon. And um, when it was getting close for the time for me to graduate, he asked me what I was doing after school. And I said, well, I'm looking for a teaching job, but there aren't any out there for art ed. Uh, At that time, it was a very small Uh, uh, amount of kids being born because it was post-World War II Mm -hmm. or the baby boom generation. And um, so he said, well, why don't you come and work for me? And I said, you know, that would be awesome. So I started working for Kermit and, you know, it was from the gamut of building a 24-foot high marionette for Don Quixote for uh, New York City Ballet that sprung up off the floor. It was all uh, flat, and it was it folded it accordion basically to the floor. Oh wow! And um, from that to doing the parade costumes for Joffrey Ballet that were based on Picasso's designs. To dyeing snuffleupagus fur because, you know, a new snuff, he had to be made every year. Um, and, uh, sewing big bird feathers on and, you know, just like the kind of the grunt work of doing anything and everything that came my way. And also doing puppets for television commercials and all kinds of crazy stuff. But, uh, Kermit's work was kind of, You know, it was totally freelance and it was, you know, one month we, you know, for a month and a half, we would be crazy busy working seven days a week and then you'd go a month and a half and not have anything to do. So I would spend a lot of that time building my own puppets. And uh, after working for him for about 10 months, the summer was very slow And Kermit would go and teach at the University of Hawaii. He would teach a summer puppetry class there. And when he came back, I went to meet with him about getting an interview at, at Muppets. And when I walked in the door, he said to me, you know, there's a new project starting up at Muppets. And I think you would be really good for it. And I want you to go and interview with Jim. And I was like, I was just... I was almost like in a state of shock because I was like, I can't believe I came here to ask him this today. <laughs> and he's telling me this. So, so I went, I think the following Thursday to the Muppet workshop. And I was just like, totally, I, I mean, I was so nervous and I was totally overwhelmed and Jim walked in and he just said, well, what do you've got to show, show me. And I had like all these black plastic bags filled with, the puppets I had been working on for the last two years. And um, I started pulling them out and he was just like looking at everything. And one of them was a, was a character called Mephistopheles, which was kind of like a dragon, um, more like a Chinese dragon, but I had made an eye blink mechanism for it. And he was very animated and it was all uh, out of dyed foam and he just was like looking at it he was like this is he said, "This stuff is really great." He said, "When would you like to start working?" And I said, "Well, oh. I'll start tomorrow and wow. he said, "You know, know that you know i have to I have to get in touch with human resources and stuff He said, Why don't you come back next Tuesday and I said, "Okay, fine And that was the beginning of me working on dark crystal.
1: Wow, so how did your brain even process? You've got your your stuff, your, your stuff that you've built, and you've... Uh, I didn't realize, so you were involved in every aspect of puppet construction.
3: Yes. Um, I, I would build mechanisms. I would build... I would sculpt. I would fabricate. Um, sometimes you were carving out of solid blocks of foam to create stuff for Muppet Show, and then covering it with fleece fabric. I mean, it, it was... There were no, you know, the great thing about working at Muppets, there was no um, restriction on your approach or creative freedom. I mean, Jim wanted it that way. He wanted people to be out there and exploring and trying new things. And plus, I mean, I was working with the the greatest craftsmen on the planet. I mean. Foz uh, Fozicus, who developed all the radio controlled mechanisms for the Muppets. All the users. You know, and, and, I mean, the guy was amazing. His father owned the last organ building company in the U.S. Pipe organs. So he trained doing that. Then he, after World War II, he got a job working for Bill Baird, uh, building mechanisms for marionettes. He also was always fascinated with radio-controlled airplanes. I mean, Foz could, you know, make anything. He, he was just an exceptional person, and I—he taught me so much. You know, just he was an amazing person. And he, you know, he he would show you how to how how he approached building mechanisms, and he said, "Now, see what you can come up with. What can you do?" You know. And, and he was great. He was just an incredible mentor for me.
1: So his approach wasn't, here's how this is done. Now do it like that. It was, here's how this is done. What can you come up with?
3: Exactly. Yeah.
1: That's very, very cool. And the
3: hand mechanism I designed for the mystics was, you know, influenced by Foz's work. There was another guy there named Lee Donaldson who did a lot of work with Foz building mechanisms. And he he designed the, hand mechanism for the Skexus, which, of course, no puppeteer could get, you know, your hand into that thing. It was he, their fingers were so bony and uh, tight, you know, that he, Lee came up with this great mechanism. I saw what he did and I was like going, oh, I would like to do that for the mystics, but make it work off the puppeteer's hand, like make the fingers extended from the movement that you have in your hand. So it would mm-hmm. remain natural. And, um, so that's what I did. I, I just started playing around with, you know, building this wooden extension that had wires that created tension that went over the back of your knuckles. So as you pulled your fingers forward, the whole hand, you know, the whole, all the, the end of the digits would all pull together and contract. So. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I, it was a fantastic time.
1: Before you met, because obviously going to meet Jem Henson with your your own handcrafted creations, I mean, that had to be huge, but how conscious were you of kind of everybody else that was involved in the Henson Company at that point? Did you know the the talents that you were stepping into, or was it kind no. of just... it's it's Henson.
3: No, I didn't know. I mean, the only person I knew was Kermit and Kermit was, you know, I mean, even beyond Muppets, Kermit was, I mean, a really well-known costume designer. You know, he was at the top of his craft. So, no, I mean, and people at Muppets were very unassuming, you know, it's like, this is what they did. This is what came to them naturally. And, you know, we know we're doing the best stuff, you know. We know that nobody is even coming close to what we're doing, you know. Right. So, you know, it was just, it was just. It, I learned more one year working at Muppets than I learned four years at university, without a doubt. Yeah. And they were paying imagine. me to learn, which was even more incredible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you got uh, you ended up working on Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. What was you know Brian Froud was the inspiration for that but how how did it work with the designs and everything for the characters there was it was it an atmosphere where you could say you know what I I thought of this creature will this fit into it or or was it very specific things that they were looking for
0: no
3: no no i, I well it was a lot of give and take um you know i mean a lot of the environmental creatures We had more leeway because we just had to make so many of them that, you know, people Mm -hmm. were playing around with all kinds of things. Like that little kind of bird character that Foz designed, you know, uh, you know, Brian would give you a pencil sketch and then it was kind of up to you to figure out, well, how are you going to make, you know, these tiny little legs move? How are you going to make this, you know, look real and and be able to fool a live film camera, you know? you know, without seeing, you know, were, like the special effects stuff was minimal, you know, mm-hmm. the after effects were minimal on that movie. I mean, yeah, everything you see in that movie is in that movie, you yeah, know, it's yeah. like the sets, everything, you know, the observatory Agra has, you know, spinning around in circles and, you know, it's like, that was all there. I mean, I, well, the other day I was looking back at some of the, just the shots of the sets and I was going, you know, it's like, some of them were three stories high. You know, it, it was amazing.
1: Well, and it's a complete world is is yeah. what is so incredible, is, you know, you have all those sets, but as you just said, there's also all of the little background creatures yeah. that just, you know, as a shot pans across the forest, it's not just the forest with the gelflings walking around. There are also creatures moving in the foreground and the background. I mean,
3: yeah. it,
1: it's incredible how populated the world is. And
3: I, and I have to say... You know, when I think back on it now, the amount of work that Brian put out, I mean, we worked on that movie for two and a half years, which is, was unheard of then, and is probably even more unheard of now. Sure. Uh, you know, and the amount of drawings that, you know, Brian like spit out was just, it's incredible, you know, it, it was incredible. And And I'll I'll never forget it was when I was sculpting all the mystics' heads. I kept on asking him for a front view. He said, Tim, I can't draw a front view. Their noses are too long. (laughs) It just looks so bizarre if I even try and think about it. He said, "Just, just keep going the way you're going. It's fine, you know. And so we... We, it, that was a great thing we worked a lot back and forth back and forth I mean, if somebody came up with a great you know little character or a mechanism or you know, you know I mean I remember one of the pieces was just a big sculpted piece of rubber that um, everybody the puppeteers all put their fingers in these little projectiles and and you know moved it up and down and around and you know it's like you look at it and you go, You would never guess how that was, that was, that thing moved, you know, but it was just like 20 people underneath here, just (laughs) having their hands stuck in it and wiggling it up and down and moving it around, you know, it was really simple. That was the great thing. Some of this, the simplest tricks were the most effective. Mm. I mean, wings on characters that were used just by taking a can of air and shooting it up and down so that the wings would flop, you know, on a hinge. It's so easy and simple. I mean, Foz was a genius at this thing, you know, uh, of taking simple ideas and making them very effective. I mean, people look at the, the great Muppet caper, the scene of the Muppets riding bicycles and they, Mm -hmm. how the heck did they do that? You know, like how did they get those puppets to push those pedals? Well, they didn't because you know the gearing in a bicycle if it's set you know like on an old fashioned bicycle if the bicycle rolls the pedals roll so they sure. marionetted the bicycle and they just rolled them across the set and the <laughs> the puppet's feet moved up and down you know it was
1: oh that's was so great
3: you're a genius
1: because, I, I mean, I have, I've, uh, even even as a kid, you know, once once I got to the point where, you know, I got the whole puppet thing, I, I wondered about that scene, is it, do they have little motors in there? How is this working? It's so nice to know it's such a basic, simple thing. Right. And so obvious, too.
3: The only thing that was radi- radio controlled was their head, you know, their head mechanism, which Paz also was the creator of that whole system, um, you know. And the puppeteers would be off, you know, camera, with a basically a sleeve that they put on their hand, and you know, moving it would move it. the head up and down, left and right, and the mouth would open and close, and you know, it's all on a universal joint. Very, very clever. It's like a time traveling oven mitt.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Did you, when you were working on Dark Crystal, did you, you know, franchises and movies weren't really a a thing then, right? But did did you see it as possibly the start of something, or was it just kind of a a wonderful one time project?
3: No, no. no. I mean, we definitely um, kind of, you know, Jim always wanted to move in new directions. He did, We knew that he didn't want to keep Muppet Show going forever and ever, and even though he could have. Um, he he wanted to move in new directions, and we saw Dark Crystal as the beginning of that. You know, moving in a new direction, and okay. you know, it was. Did we know that he, what he was going to do next? No, but we knew that that it was a major interest of his.
1: Now, we, when we kind of had our initial conversation about doing this podcast, uh, you had mentioned, uh, I, I want to get you to tell the story again, because we were talking about toy design, and I, and I mentioned that it's fascinating to me the idea of somebody taking something like an X-Wing fighter or a Millennium Falcon from Star Wars and turning it into a toy, a functional toy to sell at retail. Right. And uh, you you had a story from a visit to the Star Wars set.
3: Yeah, well, because at Elstree Studios, they were, at the same time that we were working in the workshops, building uh, stuff for Dark Crystal, they were shooting um, the Star Wars, uh, you know, the second uh, section of Star Wars with Yoda. And um, a lot of people at Muppets were helping to uh, develop the foam latex creatures for Star Wars because uh, foam latex previously had always been used as a makeup appliance and um, uh, Muppets was really the first ones to kind of take it and use it as a puppet material. So when they ta- were talking about doing Yoda, uh, Stewart Freeborn, who was a very famous uh, special effects makeup guy, he did, um two thousand and one, the space Odyssey he did all the apes in that that movie uh he came in and they kind of collaborated with him on building Yoda so uh wendy Meidner who who did Jen and Kira was uh you know very helpful to Stuart in helping him figure out how to make this thing you know as a puppet rather than as prosthetics to be applied to somebody's face. So there was a lot of crossover. And when I was walking through the set one day, you know, or, or their workshop one day, going from, you know, one side of the studio to the other, I I walked through a section where they were making all the the uh, spaceships for the movie, you know, the model spaceships. And I was like, I couldn't get over the fact that they were taking old Ravel models and breaking them up and gluing them onto you know, these things. They weren't, you know, sitting there in front of a lathe turning out, you know, pieces. They were just breaking up old model parts to make, you know, (laughs) these, you know, these new spacecraft. And I I just thought, you know, it's like that, you know, right there. It was like, oh, it's a lot easier than I thought, you know. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's not exactly what I thought it was, you know. It's less work than the, you know, because time is money. So,
1: Absolutely. Well, it's, no, it's it's another instance of something just being simpler than you thought it would
3: be. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely.
1: You know, just having, a, having the perspective to look at one of those model kits and think, okay, well, that piece, you know, it's meant to be part of the engine, but it could also just be a, a little gimbal to sit on top of part of a spaceship.
3: Exactly. Yeah,
1: and and that that's that's a whole other kind of creativity that I think is very interesting.
3: That's
2: such a huge part of puppet building, you know, because as as puppet builders, we're always repurposing other things. Yeah, because you don't go to the puppet store and buy puppet supplies. (laughs) You know, you go, you're buying stuff. Well, there's this stuff that they use on shingles that works really good on puppets. You know, it's always stuff from the (laughs) weirdest places. You know, it's like, oh, well, you can get this two part this two part fiberglass from the boat Marine place. And you got to go and you, you ask for Rob and Rob will hook you up with the, with the two, with the two part, you know, like boat epoxy that goes on the outside of boats. That's really good at this, you know, one thing. Um, it's, I'll never it's always forget, about that.
3: I'll never forget when I was up on Cape Cod one summer and I went into a fishing, you know, and tackle supply place and I was getting all these bobbers in increasing size. And the guy, you know, behind the counter is kind of like watching me. And he's like, he said, man, you must, you must go through a lot of bobbers. And I said, no, I'm using them to make eyes for puppets. And he said, what? I said, well, because <laughs> the bobbers are, you can use the lid, you know, the, the, the next size up as the lid to go yeah. over an eye. And he just looked at me and he said, well, if that ain't Yankee ingenuity, <laughs> So it's like, it's very true. You you know, I'm always going to the hardware store and they say to me, well, what do you need? And I say, I don't exactly know yet. I have to look yeah. around, see if I can look find something
0: that'll work for I what it. I want.
3: And yeah. they say, well, what are you doing? And I say, well, I'm building this toy and I want, you know, this to do this and this and this. And I need a little piece of tubing that goes through a valve to do this, you know, and they're just like, okay, all right, just go. <laughs> I mean, <Yeah>. Go look, <laughs> yeah. You know. And the older the hardware store, the better, which is unfortunate because mm-hmm. they're disappearing. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. And that's got to be one of those beautiful moments where, where you are just kind of looking around, seeing what's there, seeing what, what resources are available. And you see that one item that's, Oh, that's, that can be that. Yes. Yeah. That's got to be such a moment of revelation.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's I think a that's lot of... what attracts
2: puppet builders too, is that, you know, uh, there's a there's a, always an element of problem solving that goes into a puppet, well, I want the puppet to do this. how do I get it to do that? you know yeah. so I think it takes a real sort of just you know an engineering um and and creative uh kind of person to to be attracted to that kind of work of right. I really love solving problems you know that's almost all you mm-hmm.
3: do yeah you have to you have to have that inquisitive nature and and not be shy about you know exploring and making mistakes and trying it over and which is something i found out this week trying to do a, a mold out of a new material that was a total disaster so i'm back to square one but yeah you know. well but it's now an important you know.
1: thing
0: right yeah right
1: we've we've talked about stuff like that before in doing our costuming podcasts that you know the very rare is it that it all just works, and you have your finished product it, it's It's important to be able to say, Well, that didn't work. time to start over again and try a different way. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. but it's always such a pleasant surprise because when you have that attitude going in, I just had this experience. Where you have that attitude going in, we're like, well, I have to build you know at least five mockups before I finally start before it's ever it's going to start to gel. And I was building um, some, a shadow puppet. I don't have a lot of shadow puppet, shadow puppet experience, so this is new territory for me. Mm-hmm. And my first, my first draft worked really well. I was like, oh, these legs don't look completely ridiculous when I move them. I, I was not expecting this to look this good on the first try. So when you go into it with the attitude of, well, I'm going to start here, and then that's not going to work, and then I'm going to go to the next version, and that's not going to work, and eventually I'll get to it, you get to be pleasantly surprised when it does work on the first time. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely.
1: So, did you go directly from Dark Crystal onto Fraggle Rock? Was there a, an, an intermission between there?
3: Yeah, no. I actually, I got three weeks off. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I got. I, I had literally worked on on Dark Crystal straight for two and a half years, without a break. And except for occasional weekends, because uh, towards the end, we were working through the weekends, too. Um, And I got I actually I think we got a month and a half off or something like that. And then they said and then you're expected back in New York City to start up on a new project, you know, and that was Fraggle Rock. And I was like, wow, you know, this is awesome. And uh I was assigned with Jane Gutnick to do all the singing fraggles in the background, which was a real challenge because it was basically, let's say five puppeteers controlling, you know, 25 um, radio controlled puppets and they had to sing in unison and the mechanism, I mean, the, the covering for the mechanism had to be, Perfectly balanced and very lightweight. Otherwise, they just chattered, you know,
0: Mm -hmm.
3: the they would just go crazy, erratic movement. So that that was a real challenge. We had to actually hand cut a fleece down uh, with scissors to get it to be lighter weight. We had to be very careful about how we balance the eyes on the top of the head because if they were too far forward or too far back and I also had the great pleasure to be, to build uh, traveling Matt for yeah. Trag- which still to this day is one of my favorite characters. It's just, you know, I, I, I loved his quirky way of looking at the world and it kind of reminds me of the way I look at the world. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times when I see things, written uh, The English language can have so many double entendres that you know, it's like sometimes when people write things They don't realize how it can be misconstrued in so many different ways Yes, traveling Matt was just wonderful character for being able to To look at the, the human world in a completely unique way Well, I think that's something
2: that Jim was really interested in you know like showing us this alien world with Dark Crystal Mm -hmm. And then and then showing us our own world through the eyes of an alien with traveling Matt. You know, you really that outside looking in to something that you've never seen before, but then also opening your eyes to a way to to a certain perspective of of your own world that you've never considered.
0: Right. Right.
1: Well, and what was so amazing about Fraggle Rock was all of the world's that were in it because you know you had the world of the Fraggles, you had the world of the Doozers. Right. That you know while they cohabitated, the Doozers were were a wholly separate society.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and and then you had the the og- uh, ogres in the trash heap. Yeah, the gorgs. The gorgs level. Yeah. Gorgs. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. They were a totally and different then, scale. And then you had traveling Matt, who was in our own world with Sprocket and uh oh gosh i can't remember the human
3: yeah doc
1: doc, doc thank yeah. you uh and and it's amazing that you know in such you know this little half hour show that started on hbo didn't it
2: it was hbo's first original programming it was the first show that the first television show that hbo produced
3: and and uh, so few people had hbo at that time I don't think anybody saw it when it first came out, you know, it it was not considered successful, but, you know, because it was such a small amount of people. And now when you look back at, you know, the amount of people that have access to HBO, it's it's incredible.
1: It's funny. We had uh, one of those old cable boxes with the physical switches on it Mm -hmm. and the and the wood grain uh, on the side and uh, HBO was the one cable channel that we actually got, so I I was wow, lucky enough lucky. to be able to watch Fraggle Rock, and and it was, I mean there there was nothing like it, and yeah. obviously at that point I knew I knew the Muppet Show and I knew Sesame Street, but you know Fraggle Rock was a, a very very different, much more you know it was still family programming, but much more mature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but than it, had, it had just Street. some big
2: ideas, you know I mean these yeah. ideas of like that you could that walking through a cave could take you to another dimension. Right. And that's not something they like they never they, you never hear them say the word dimension on the show. Right. But that's and especially towards the end of the show, things got like extra weird. You know, like I think I remember one episode specifically where Gobo gets lost and he comes out into a sort of even more alien world that's not the Gorg's world or the Doozers, you know, or, or the um the human the world of the humans. And it was really alien and really strange. And you know,
1: with all the black light and everything? I think so, yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I So this I idea that you're that. not you're not you're not walking through a portal, you're not there's no like you just walk through a cave. You know, it, it was it had that sort of Narnia yes. sort of feeling to it, yes. you know. Um that was that was some, some new stuff on TV.
3: Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it's it says a lot about Jim's purpose to educate children in many, many, many different ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll never forget at Jim's funeral, Harry Belafonte pointing out that Jim was probably responsible for educating more children in the world than any other single human being. And, you know, when you look back on it, you go, wow, you know, he, he he was right, you know.
2: Across Uh, across all of his projects, you know, when you look at...
3: Yeah, and and just how many places in the world. I remember uh, adults writing uh, Muppets from Japan saying that they learned how to speak English from watching Sesame Street.
2: Yeah, and that every, you know, that Fraggle Fraggle Rock and Sesame Street had different versions in different different countries. You know, Mr. Rogers didn't have that. Mr. Rogers was just in the States, you know, and but the yeah. fact and the fact that like it wasn't just dubbed you know like the doc in in France was a chef and it was a different guy you know yeah. it was a different actor and so it wasn't just like oh we're going to dub our that we're going to make our sh- the same show culturally relevant to you you know yes. um and sesame street still does that you know
3: yeah yeah I, well that was another thing that we did at kermit's studio was building um, yeah, many another. of the puppets for the foreign uh, shows for Sesame Street. So, I've had the,
2: the pleasure of taking some mechanism classes with Jim Krupa. Um, yes. So I've I've, uh, I've gotten to hear some cool Kermit love stories. Um, yeah,
3: Kermit through. was a character.
2: Krupa's, <laughs> oh, he still is. He still is. It's about one-third learning something about mechanisms and two-thirds awesome stories that Jim has to tell
3: <laughs> yes. about working on stuff. Um, Actually, Jim and I went to Pratt together. Oh, really? Yeah, he was, um, I think, maybe two years behind me at Pratt. But, and then we both worked at Kermit's studio together. Yeah. Um, and so then he went easy. off, of course, to doing his own stuff with Eureka's Castle and, gosh, I don't know how many other shows. Just,
2: he, he built the Snuggle Bear uh, yeah. from Snuggle commercials and the Sherman yeah. Baby Flying Babies. Um, he has a great story about cooking a baby on the Charm shoot. <laughs> like, we don't understand why the baby keeps crying. It's like, oh, because we're laying it on hot lights. That's... All right. oh. Yeah. Oh, dear.
1: So Sorry. you... Uh, after Dark Crystal and Fraggle Rock, or I guess uh, during Fraggle Rock, were you working on any other Henson projects? How, how long did you stay with Henson uh, before uh, you moved on?
3: Well... After Fraggle Rock was finished, because the whole production was shot in Canada, so we did a lot of pre-production work, and then um, the show went to Canada to be uh, taped, and then Muppets didn't have, you know, like more work. You know, they basically set up a studio in Canada to build the the probably the third, and fourth season. And um you know it was just a complete shock because they basically came to a lot of us and said, "We're putting you on freelance because we we haven't been able to sell another project and we' were like, how can this company that had the most popular t v show in the world and the most popular children's television show in the world you know just not have um you know?" and, you know, be able to sell a new project. And, but, you know, I, I think also Jim ended up putting a lot of his own money into dark crystal, which was, you know, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And, um, so a lot of us, they put on freelance and, uh, just before I think I left to be, you know, as a permanent employee, uh, or a full-time employee, they, um, I had gone to Jim and said, because I had worked on the toys, sculpting the toys for Dark Crystal. And I had said to him, you know, like we're doing such innovative things and the toy companies are just producing stuff based on Sesame Street characters. That's just not very imaginative or fun or interesting. And I said, good. I could, yeah. And yeah.
2: Or looking I said, more, I said, the, you know, that I
3: looks could the characters. Do things here that are a lot, more creative. And he said to me, Tim, I think it's a great idea, but I just don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I always say that that was like the best kick in the pants I ever got. Because then when, when they put me on freelance, I I did go back and work on, you know, other projects with them from time to time, um, from sculpting the dark crystal toys to, um, there was a, a, live action live act, actor and actress um puppet version of The Little Mermaid to be produced for with Disney in you know in cooperation with Disney and um The Puppets came out great. The writing for the show was awful. And when supposedly when Michael Eisner saw the first uh you know like uh like sizzle reel or the first pilot show, he said, burn it. Oh,
0: wow.
3: <laughs> the writing was so terrible and the production quality was so awful. I mean, the puppets of course were fantastic, but you know, that's only a part of, you know, making yep. something great. So, so that didn't pan out. So, um, you know i started I started working on ideas I had for puppets and uh, sectors, which was the first puppet I sold I mean the first toy line I sold through my age in seven towns at that time um, grew out of uh, me building a fly hand puppet that you know your fingers move the legs and um, that came out of not liking wearing you know, Halloween masks to, you know, Halloween parties. Mm -hmm. And I had designed that in my free time when I was working for Kermit and had to go to a Halloween party. And then Muppets, of course, would have these incredibly elaborate Halloween parties. Mm -hmm. And so I just wore that one time. And people freaked out over it. <laughs> like
0: it was such a simple thing.
3: <laughs> but The idea of having this huge fly come and sit on your shoulder or go over and you know, stick its nose in your drink, they, they okay. just were like, ah! <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it was, it, was, it was subtle and effective. And, so um, what point, how did you sort of have the
2: aha moment of, of the fly puppet and then say, you know what would look really good on my hand as an action figure riding this puppet?
3: Well, actually, I didn't. I I was working with Seven Towns and Maureen Trado, um, who I did Boglins with also, but that came, Boglins came later. Um, we Seven Towns is, has an, had an office in New York City where Larry Mask was the, their representative, and I called him after a toy fair, the first toy fair I went to because he was the only person listed in Playthings magazine as being an agent for toy companies. And um, it, it's very difficult to get into toy companies because they're so paranoid of people bringing in ideas that are not their own. And so if they don't know you, they don't want to see you. And Seven Townshead um, represented uh, Rubik's Cube, so I called Larry up and I said to him, you know, like, I really want to come in and show you some concepts I have for toy products. And he said, uh, you know, he was kind of brushing me off, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's really hard to break in. He was like, and I said, well, I used to work for the Muppets and I have these great, I he said, oh, you used to work for the Muppets? You should come in. So, <laughs> so that was, you know, I mean, having worked at Muppets has opened a lot, a lot of doors for me throughout my life and continues to. And, um, so I was showing him all kinds of things, you know, that it wasn't just the fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I would just pull these things out of a bag and I pulled the fly out and, you know, put it on. And I started showing him how I could make it move. And he said, ah, oh, you know, it's like if we put an action figure on the back of this, he said, I think we really have something different and new to, you know, uh, add to the whole action figure category. So, um, Maureen and I both started working on prototypes and building, you know, and sketching out concepts. And, um, I was down to, I think $650 in the bank and my wife was pregnant. And I said, I think I better go get a job. And Maureen kept on plugging away at, you know, making the, the models, and we presented it that next year to Coleco at Toy Fair, and they wanted it right away. So awesome. it was very, very lucky, very lucky.
1: Well, and it is, I mean, it's one of the standout concepts of the 80s, because anytime you're going to talk about 80s toys, you know, back then everything was gimmicky to a certain extent, but those sectors, one, when I was a kid, they totally creeped me out. Good. Yeah. I mean
3: phantom so was... twice.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, you were responsible for a good portion of my mental problems at this point <laughs> in my life. And I didn't even know it until uh until we met. But no, really, the sectors were they were once again they had that interactivity
0: yeah.
1: uh of the large puppet insects, but then the figures themselves were were very nice-looking figures for the time. The sculpts on those yeah. were really good. And the way that they interacted with the, the large insects, I mean, they sat on them well. It wasn't yeah. just a thing where you kind of plugged them on there. Uh, and then, of course, they had that hive, which is the largest playset that, that's ever been made.
3: <laughs> Probably.
1: Uh, how... How how much input did you have into the different aspects of the line beyond just the puppets?
3: Well, um, I think after we sold the line to Coleco, Orin and I basically spent three solid months uh, just doing concept sketches. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want me to do any of the sculpting, even though I offered and showed them previous work I had done. Um the the toy industry likes to keep inventors away from sculptors and sculptors away from inventors. Uh, I guess cause of, you know, people ripping off ideas. I don't know, you know, exactly, but I, that's my assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, we did three months solid of doing that. And then the whole idea of coming up with, um, well, what, how are we going to promote this, you know, and, uh, do we do an animated cartoon, blah, blah, blah? And I said, no, you know, like, everybody's doing animated cartoons. Why don't we do a live uh, action stop-motion movie? And, you know, people in the toy industry were, like, going, well, what, are you, what do you mean, what are you talking about? And luckily, the head of licensing at that time, um, Cheryl Stebenau, was really open to new ideas. And I said, no, we could do... We can make stop motion insects on a small scale and have, you know, stop motion characters like Ray Harryhausen, uh, you know, moving and flying throughout, you know, the movie and then combine it with, you know, full sized insects, you know, that are gigantic mockups with actors on their back and just combine the two and, you know, create something totally different and unique and unique. so they flew us out to Maureen and I out to California and we started production and, um, uh, Larry Brody, who had written Conan, the barbarian was hired to write the script and Maureen walked, worked very closely with him because Maureen had written a lot of the backstory for the characters for sectors. And, um, Herb Solo, who had been a producer for Star Trek television show. No, yeah, Star Trek uh, was hired to produce the movie. And we got six weeks into production and, you know, uh, Universal had put up $10 million to getting the movie going. And Coleco had to come up with the other 10. Uh. They just said, no, nope, we're not doing it.
1: Oh, my gosh.
3: And I, you know, it's like, it. from what I've heard since, that unfortunately, Coleco had invested so much money into producing their, you know, uh, Atom computer without mm-hmm. having any experience in doing stuff like that. Because they had done ColecoVision, but, you know, and ColecoVision, I think, did quite well, but the Atom computer was just a huge economic flop. Yeah. And yeah. they had also come out with, we're working on Rambo toys um, around the same time. And as soon as they told me that they were going to do Rambo, I was going, Oh, you know, <laughs> this is the end of sectors because, uh, you know, like the price points on sectors was very high. Yeah. The main characters, which was, you know, difficult. And they were going into the second year And they had downscaled all the insects and, you know, uh, made it more affordable. But I think because they were so expensive to start, they did not sell the number of products in the first year that they were expecting. So they got cold feet and they were going on to Rambo. And I, I, you know, they had asked me what I thought about, you know, one of the, the guy who was head of inventor relations there, asked me what I thought about them doing Rambo. And I said, I think you're, you guys are way off the mark. I said, I think you're crazy. And he said, why? I said, well, because you're going to be trying to sell toys, you know, about Vietnam to the biggest anti-war generation in the history of America. (laughs) Most of the people who are having kids now was all those, you know, hippies from the sixties and the seventies. I said, they're not going to buy rambo toys for their kids and and he said but there's going to be a cartoon i said jerry it won't matter and of course that was another you know big economic uh failure yeah for yeah
1: I, I remember that that line well i i've now now i have this these visions dancing in my head of this sector's movie S- sectors like, Rambo. In like no, <laughs> in like the dark crystal style, yeah of yeah. just yeah. beautiful, gorgeous landscapes and these huge you know animatronic and and puppet style bugs, oh yep. my gosh oh
3: yeah it was, it was i mean the Kyoto brothers who um have done a lot of special effects work, I was working with them on doing the small models for the the stop motion and I forget who we, which studio was doing the big full-scale insects, but yeah, I mean it was it was like it was all going in the right direction until they just ran out of money
1: and it you know? just hit a wall because Coleco... Oh, that's disappointing we, uh, I think we've actually got a, a, a listener question here Bo, if you, you've got a sectars question right?
2: Yeah, oh. um, I have a buddy who's a huge sectars fan, I've, I've seen his figures at his house and so I told him that we were going to have you on the podcast, and so I said, hey, do you have any questions you want me to ask? And um, his one question was, uh, were there any unmade designs or prototypes of characters that you were fond of um, that never, never saw the light?
3: Oh my gosh. So many, <laughs> so many, I, I have the drawings still in my flat files. Um One of them was a great larva man. I had made, you know, this really ugly looking slug beast with his ride on slug, you know, I mean, there's so many, <laughs> you know, it's just because when you're just like in the, you know, it's like, I had insect books, you know, like all over my studio and, there's so many different wild and crazy
2: oh, it's uh, a, insects. Fancy, yeah. Talk about a fantastic point of inspiration.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It was, and it was, it was endless. Yeah. But you know, and like, even like the, what they call a sow beetle or a pill bug, I had a character that rolled up that you could roll across the floor and then would, you know, unroll himself and, Oh you my know, gosh! They were they were all they were all great, great things. But you know <laughs> that was a long time ago.
1: So, after Sectars, uh, how, what what kind of time elapsed between them and and Boglin's?
3: Um, well, uh, we actually showed Boglin's to Coleco, uh probably about three months after we had sold. Um, three or four months after, I think.
1: Oh, wow. So how long and, w- was Boglins one of the concepts you kind of had sitting around?
3: No, I mean, I was always, you know, working on new things, you know, like <laughs> I have an endless imagination. And um, so we showed Coleco um, Boglins, and they wanted to – Added into the sectors line as like a, you know, like this evil monster that mm-hmm. the sectors would have to deal with. And they actually made a prototype, which looked nothing like what uh, Maureen and I had created. And it was awful. I mean, it was just the, like it had a vacuum cleaner hoses and neck and cause they didn't like the idea that it didn't have a body. You know, it was, and they had stuck <laughs> this weird body on the bottom of it, and I and I and then they showed it to me. You know, it's like you know you have to be I, you can't say what you really think. Cause, you know, it's like sure, you have to be polite. Sure. But I was just like, oh my god, this is a disaster. And you know, if they had to produce it at the size the thing is, it would have cost a fortune. So so um, we left, and then not too long after that, you know, the whole kind of environment about you know, their feeling about sectors has changed and they said, you know, we're not going to go ahead with Bogdan's. And we said, great, you know, so <laughs> it, it went right back out, you know, being circulated amongst, amongst the major toy companies and Mattel saw it and they loved it and they got it right away, you know, and of, I, of all the, well, not more recently, but at that time as an outside inventor, you know, one of the, the, things is that you have to be open to having your work change dramatically from what you envision at the very beginning, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but Boglin's, the, the Dwork Boglin really looks very much like the prototype that, that I built. And, um, I think it's the thing that's closest to you know my own personal vision, creative vision, and probably why I love it still. You know, it's just like I still pick them up and I'm going, you yeah, know, God, this was really a great toy. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, the I, I I made an eye mechanism that was not designed the, the way that um, the one in the toy is. It was cable controlled, and. Um, it had side to side movement, and it had an eye blink that was all c- cable controlled on a separate, like handheld unit. Mm-hmm. And then in his tail, I had made a lever that went through to his right hand, so his or his left hand actually, mm-hmm. that would open and close his hand. So uh, they, they that was all too expensive and yeah. so sure, simplified, sure. but but. Um, you know, it was it was a great it was it was great to see it come to fruition, you know, so close to what we originally inv what Maureen and I originally envisioned as what their characters were, who they were, you know, what the storyline behind it was, you know. They got it. And it was funny because we we actually had sold it to Mattel and I think that summer gremlins the movie came out we had already done boglins produced it sold it and gremlins came out and we went oh no you know there goes (laughs) there goes boglins because you know it's like here's the movie that's so similar so um uh Maureen and I were a little worried but you know luckily the toy industry was not on the tail end of you know, movies the way they are now, like where it's pre-planned and organized. And it's like, as soon as the movie launches, you know, it's like the product is out there and the Gremlin product didn't come out till probably a good nine months after the movie came out. So, so we had that whole avenue of sales and establishing Boglins as its own character before the Gremlins toys came out. So we were very lucky in that, on, on that side. What what was the... You, you seem to mostly
1: feel pretty positively about your experience with with dealing with the big toy companies. Did you find, for the most part, that you were able to get your ideas through? Because you said it's, it's something that you have to just deal with, is that what you create is not what's going to end up on the shelf. Yes. But do you overall feel pretty satisfied with, with how things turned out with sectors and boglins it's Yeah, like, like I mean, were there how
3: they look as toys? Yes. Very much.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. There weren't any major like you know, the toy well, company wanted stuff. things a certain way.
3: I think it's also because I was I was coming at the toy industry from such a different perspective and that the styling of what Maureen and I were, were producing was so different that they kind of like went, wow, you know, this is this is really groundbreaking and unusual and they had really good resource in us you know mm-hmm. they used it thank goodness you know yeah I mean I've had I've had toy companies you know bastardize things to the point that you go that's not even mine you know it's
0: like, right
3: I, I I'll never forget showing something to Mattel and they said oh we really like this idea we want to put it into Barbie and I went what <laughs> <laughs> and they said yeah we want to we want to add it in a, it into the Barbie line and I was going how do you figure that you know <laughs> and they said you'll see and I said okay you know it's like reluctantly you know
0: sure and of course sure. it never
3: well, it never happened you know it's-
1: and that's kind of it's an amazing thing about the 80s and and the toy lines that happened Back then you could have original properties like Boglins and Sectars yeah. yeah. that could find their own success that could be interesting and and succeed because of that. Now everything is licensed. Everything is from a movie or a television show or a cartoon. Now granted in the eighties cartoons were very heavy, but you could still sneak these great little lines in mm-hmm. that that didn't have a related item.
3: Exactly which is why i think so many well i shouldn't say why why the designer toy industry has been created because you know it's like there's people who want to create great toys and they don't have access to you know the the money or the backing to produce you know these big multi million dollar projects and so you can't you know it's like almost all the toy designers that I used to meet, you know, circulating their products and that the inventor nights at Hasbro or Mattel or whatever, you know, they all, uh, you know, had to go and do other things because whether they just started doing packaging for companies or, you know, designing products that the toy companies were bringing to them, you know, they, they, they basically got shut out because you, you couldn't compete, you know, it's like, you couldn't compete with these huge uh, animation studios, you know, right, right. television shows or whatever, you know.
1: I, I think another thing to to point out is that both of these lines could be released today exactly as they were in the 80s with no retooling or anything alongside any toy that's out right now.
3: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean... They uh, there was a, a small company in the late '90s that, or mid '90s, that tried to relaunch uh, Boglin's, but in the U.S. But the, they didn't have the advertising budget, so it kind of went on the shelf and went off the shelf, and nobody even knew it was there. I mean, you know, it's like if you didn't walk into the toy store, you never knew that it had come out. Right, right, and and that's why through the whole resurgence with the designer toy, <laughs> Warren and I are decided to relaunch Boglin's ourselves, mm-hmm. um, but on a much smaller scale and geared more towards the designer collector toy market. Um, so we're actively working on that stuff now. That's great. So.
1: Which you've already kind of gotten your, your toes wet in, in that world with your totems.
3: Yes. Yeah, so well, um, it was funny because, again, my daughter who is keeping me current to the world, uh, <laughs> said to me, you know, Daddy, why aren't you doing designer toys? And she said, I said, you know, like, what are you talking about? She said, you know, these guys who are producing, you know, small uh, batch numbers of toys, you know, and um, – you know, some of them are doing really well, and I was like, "Going, how can you sell 30 toys and you know make any money?" And um, I'm not really sure that you can. <laughs> uh, uh, Still working on that, huh? <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, it, 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 like totems. I I was out in Los Angeles visiting my sister-in-law, and I walked by, by toy art gallery. And I said, wow, this is really cool. You know, it's like there's some very neat stuff in it there. And uh, they weren't open at the time. And I I went back the following Saturday and I'm just walking around looking at all these toys. And like some of them, the prices were, you know, just crazy. You know, it's like, what the heck's going on here? And um, the guy behind the desk said, do you have any questions? And I said, I have more questions than you can answer. And he said, well, <laughs> I said, well, because I've been in the toy business for, you know, 30 plus years and I've never seen toy product prices like this. He said, well, that's because they're all limited edition, one of a kind pieces. And I said, okay, that's interesting. He said, why, what have you done? And I told him and he, you know, of course brings it up on his computer and he says, man, people have been ripping you off for years. And I said, <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> and he said you should be doing some, you know, stuff with us. And I said, okay, that sounds like you know an interesting idea. So I met with the owner, uh, Gino Jacor, and um, we started talking over the phone. And I started sending him sketches. And the first thing I, I presented to him was an idea I had actually years ago that I still want to do. Um, and he said, "No, I think this is too complex, you know, for doing in vinyl, as I wrote a, vol- wrote a molded vinyl piece." And he said, "You know, um, what else can you come up with?" And I said, "Oh, that's no problem. I have I have plenty of other ideas." So the next thing I I sent him was totems, a quick sketch and kind of explaining the idea and why it would be collectible and how it would work and. He loved it. He, he, you know, he said, you know, great, let's do it. So, so I started sculpting them up, and then um, he sent it out to Japan to be, you know, molded. And the first launch of it was in December of last year, and uh, then in April of this year, we had a big launch at Toy Art Gallery, and you know, this stuff sold reasonably well, you know, for a first item and, you know, people not necessarily knowing who I am or where I'm coming from or You know what the heck totems are so, Mm -hmm. you know, and I and I expected to build slowly and to move, you know, forward as well as doing, you know, the bog ones again in a new way and a new form so it's, you know, I and I love it because I have total control. You know, it's like everything I'm making looks the way I want it to be. So yeah. that's exciting in itself, too. And I can I can bring out Boglin's concepts that I always wanted to do that were never done. So as well as continuing with the totems, I, I'm just finishing up doing King Tufus's head, which of all the totems that were at the show got you know, the most incredible reaction. And that was the last piece I did before I went out there. And it was kind of a rush just to make a little prototype, you know, to make a prototype model out of resin. So now I'm going back and reworking it in wax and doing a really finished job on it. So that's gotta
1: be, I, I would imagine a large part of the world of designer toys is sort of your your name the creator's name and it's it's gotta you know it's it's gotta be one of those things where oh tim clark did this this is something i want from him but at the same time you've gotta have an original and interesting concept going on too which which obviously is is something you've got no problem with but the the totems you know i i kind of follow the world of designer toys it's not a part of my collection because i <laughs> given the given the choice i'll end up buying you know 10 pacific rim figures <laughs>
0: yeah
1: <laughs> um but just some beautiful stuff on the the totems website i i wasn't when i saw the name totems i didn't really know what to expect and then actually seeing them you've done some really crazy stuff the uh the most recent one i saw with the the face sort of split
3: open yeah yeah. Uh, Cracked Soa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the volcanic lava's going out. <laughs> yeah, well, then, but, see, this is this is the great thing. There's no editing, you know? Right. It's like, I could right. never present that to a toy company. They go, it looks like it's broken, it's, you know? Sure. But this is the nice thing about it. It's, it's, the, it's, it's more of a sculpture than it is a toy product, and most of these things are, you know, they're not made to be played with. You know, they're made to be put on a shelf, you know, as as an object, and um, so I, I like the, the that I have that kind of freedom to be as crazy. I mean, one of the totems I did is a bonsai tree, you know, growing out of the top of its head, you know, and that was the first one that sold at the show, which I was very surprised, but I was I was glad that you know it's like I think it will take a while for people to understand them and appreciate them, but it will happen eventually. Cause I'm just going to keep making them like crazy. So yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's gotta be the other positive to it is, is it is entirely under your control. And as long as you're happy making them, you can just keep going.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the great yeah. thing is that, that, you know, I'm, I'm building my own kind of fan base, which isn't something new to me. You know, it's like, because you know, it's like how many toy designers actually ever have their name on their product? It's so yeah. rare, you know.
1: Well, and it's that's so something rare. that something that I I really hope the industry moves towards a little bit more. You've got a few companies like Neca that will credit their sculptors and painters and artists right. on the packaging for the toy, and that's a change that I I think is very important. I don't know that we'll ever see Hasbro or Mattel or or anybody you know, any of the big companies get to that point. But, uh, I do like seeing that some of the companies are starting to understand how important the creators are to the process, which is why I want to talk to, to, you know, you and to other people who've worked in the industry uh, just to to get that credit out there and to let people know there are folks behind how these things work and look. And, you know, it's not some executive at a company who figures out uh, you know what this figure is going to look like right or how it's going to move or what the paint is going to look like you know that's they're artists involved in the toy industry which is why we've got so many amazing things that you can even go just into toys or us and buy you know a beautiful little work of art
3: yeah i mean I, i some of the sculpting on some toys has always just amazed me you know i mean what four horsemen is doing and yeah, but McFarland did, you know, they really started that bandwagon of like doing really exceptional sculpture yes. um, for toys. I mean, some of these things are just amazing in their, their quality and uh, you know, how they look. I, you know, and I love it. I love that, that, that the, the whole toy industry is expecting much, much higher standards than than they used to.
1: Well, and what's interesting now is that there is a separation. You know, you can still go buy fun, reasonably priced toys that are good to play with, that kids can enjoy, but at the same time, you can also get higher quality, you know, collector oriented toys. Like, it's interesting that there's a line now and that even the big companies recognize that.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, it, and it's creating an opportunity for, for a whole lot more interesting stuff to get made.
3: Yeah. I mean, even even if you look at computer-generated um, toys, I mean, it's somebody who's sitting there for hours, you know, doing the work, you know. Yeah. Whether you're sculpting it by hand or, or doing it on the computer, it's, it's all human, you know, energy and time and creativity.
1: Right. There's passion involved in, in every aspect of it. Do you want to talk about Dr. Phineas a little bit?
3: Dr. Phineas didn't really turn, you know, go anywhere. Uh My son was getting out of um, – he graduated with a degree in theater, and he wanted to try and do a traveling puppet show, and it was just impossible to keep um, college students, you know – in line and working and showing up and doing all that stuff. So, um, we did, we did a bunch of shows on, we took it out on the road and we did, you know, quite well for, for a little while. But, um, I found a lot of the venues didn't know how to publicize it properly. And the last show we, we did, I think, you know, like 25 people showed up to one and, 30 showed up to the next one and I was like going, you know, it was costing me more out of my pocket to pay these students than it was bringing in. And I, and it was a lot of work for, for no return. So, but you know, some good things came out of it. I got to build some great puppets and some wonderful characters and they still may see the light of day in another form. You know, you never know. Yeah, yeah.
1: well, and that's, I mean, I guess just the exper- experience of creation is always good, regardless of, of where it ends up.
3: Yeah, and the people who saw the show absolutely loved it, you know. It, you know, like uh, some of the people afterwards came to us and said, you know, I've never seen a live puppet show in my whole life, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, it, so, so that was, you know, it, it had it had some wonderful moments and the reaction to the show was phenomenal, but, um, with the economy, the way it was, it was difficult, uh, to get people to bring their kids to a puppet show, you know, at 15 bucks a pop, you know? Right, right. But, you know, live and learn. And, you know, I, and the good thing about it is, is I had a, a children's television producer, approach me about building toys for a new children's television show. So who knows?
1: Oh, that's very cool. Well, yeah. So that's an interesting, cause I mean, obviously puppetry and, and toy creation are, are very much linked for me. So it's <laughs> it, uh, right. For <laughs> and um, for all
3: those Sesame street characters. And, and that's, What's
1: involved there when you're when you're kind of adapting something? You had talked before about the Dark Crystal toys that yeah. I I think because a few years ago Neca put out a, a short run. I think they did a couple of different characters, but you're talking about the intended line from from when the movie came yeah. out. What happened with that?
3: Well, um, they showed it at Toy Fair. Hasbro showed the, all the characters at Toy Fair in uh, February, and um, I think right around the same time the movie was launched, and they realized how terrifying the movie was, and they said, no kid is going to sit you know, through this and watch it, and then the parents are not going to want to buy toys to remind them of their kids' Running out of the theater, screaming.
1: How, how ironic is it that just a few years later you'd be dealing with a Rambo toy line? Yeah. They didn't want to do Dark Crystal. Right. Which, which while it is intense and creepy in some spots, yeah. I would still consider a family movie. Yeah,
3: well, <laughs> but then we the, got oh. a lot of people, <laughs> you know, to this day say, I can't show that movie to my kids yet, you know.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. I and mean, it, it certainly depends. You know, when I was a kid, we had the Aliens and the Predators figures, and it was just like, here are these figures for sale in, in Toys R Us of, you know, movies I can't see.
1: <laughs> right, horribly violent, R-rated movies. Yeah. But it's just, the Rambo is the one that really oh, yeah. sticks with me, because it's just like, all that is is a, three movies of a dude, well, now more than three movies, of, of a dude just murdering people here's your action figure yeah
2: <laughs> yeah at least at least the predators and aliens have like cool character
1: design
3: it was gonna be a cartoon you know
1: yeah that's right and they did do a cartoon of it which is which is a, a different kind of bizarre i guess to to go further and base a cartoon <laughs> on these R- well, I are mean, movies
2: is, is it just the <laughs> standard like rambo people know what that word means so we'll make a toy out of yeah. it yeah Well, and that's what it was.
1: was? Surely it had to be the success of G.I. Joe, and they thought, well, we can just do the same thing, but with Rambo.
3: Yeah, but see, at the time, G.I. Joe had been turned into a rescue squad guy. Mm. You know, if you look back at that time period, G.I. Joe wasn't being pushed as being in the military at all. You know, they changed it into these rescue characters who were like advanced, you know, firefighters and advanced. you know, uh, Marine rescue and all this stuff because, because the connotation, I mean, GI Joe during, during the Vietnam war, their sales plummeted, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: it wasn't until real American hero in the mid eighties when they did the whole eighties cartoon and everything. Yeah. That, uh, that, that kind of came back. Well, in the eighties, and that was the thing is the eighties were very, you know, militaristic and, and, yeah very uh well my, that that was just a thing
2: yeah, oh. they gave them goofy villains, it was the eighties, so they gave them goofy villains, you know and uh give' them the cartoon and and you and you make a it's it's not that they're army guys per se right. or it's more that they're a wacky ensemble cast right you each right. with different talents, you know exactly um,
1: which was the formula for the eighties. I mean, that, that was, it was Ninja Turtles. You can pull everything.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can pull almost any cartoon and, and swap scripts between any two and, and it would work, which is kind of charming. You know, I grew up at the time, so I, I kind of love that. So what's, uh, what is going on now, Tim, you've got the totems happening. Um, you're working on the Boglins relaunch. Yeah. Uh, where where can we find you online? What kind of projects can we look out for? Well, I'm, and uh, definitely plug your Instagram because it's probably the best Instagram feed I follow.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's Tim Clark Toys, and Clark has an E at the end. That's the Instagram. I'm on Tumblr, too, with the same call. And uh, my website for totems is just www.totems.com. Totems, but Totems is not spelled like Totem Pole. It's spelled like my, a play on my name, so it's dot com. And um, Dr. Phineas has its own website. That's Dr. – it's just dot com, and that's dedicated more to the puppets I've built for that show as well as puppets I've done for Melissa and Doug Toy Company who I worked with for eight years, designing and building stuff. That's what I was doing before I went back out on my own. So, yeah, there's tons of stuff out there.
1: <laughs> and you've got Olympic all guy. those websites, you've got puppets of your own creation uh, for sale as well.
3: Yes, yeah. The Doi Birds, which I did for the Dr. Phineas show, was kind of a unique uh, glove and rod puppet combination. And then there's uh, Sherlock Bones, who's a dog character who was in the Dr. Phineas show. And there's little video shorts in there that my, my son and I did together with some of the puppeteers who were in the Dr. Phineas show that are kind of cute. Um, so, yeah, it's all kinds of wacky stuff out there.
1: Well, very cool. Uh, is, is, are there any last minute thoughts from anybody before we wrap this thing up? Yeah, well, I want to know what's DragonCon. Oh, Bo, why don't you handle what's DragonCon? <laughs> um,
2: DragonCon is a is a multi-genre fan-run convention, so it's it's not like Comic Con in the sense that it's not really uh, industry-based. It's much yeah. more for the fans by the fans. Um, mm-hmm. So it 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 often focuses a lot more on older properties. Uh, and has a huge nostalgia market, you as like opposed the... to Comic Con being <laughs> yeah exactly, as opposed to Comic Con being only what's about what's going on right now, right and what's what the new hot movie is and what the you know and that that's kind of it really but uh, <laughs> somehow they managed to build a, a whole giant convention about movie trailers. Um, so when
3: is Dragon Con?
2: Dragon Con is Labor Day weekend here in Atlanta every year, so it's the last uh, weekend of August and the first weekend of September. It's that crossover weekend. Okay. Um, and I am the director of the puppetry track, which means I'm responsible for all the puppetry-related programming at Dragon Con. Cool. Um, and you sound like you would make a really awesome person, and I could share you with uh, American sci-fi classics um, for sure, I think. Um, which would yeah, include absolutely. you know the some of the movies and 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 other properties and the toy the toys the toy your your toy background.
0: Okay. Um,
2: so so it has it has sort of everything. It's got you know there's the puppetry track, which is my tiny little corner of Dragon Con, but then there's the literature track and the science track and the space track and the robotics track and there's professional wrestling and there's Klingon beauty pageants and you know Klingon. it's it is the <laughs> yeah. It is when the con- it that. is the
3: convention yeah. where you can find
2: everything. Is, they,
3: these are women wrapped in Saran <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, actually, you will find that there as well. <laughs> you
2: will well. definitely find that okay. there, and then yeah, there's definitely an uh, uh, an adult sort of um, nighttime atmosphere uh, to DragonCon okay. during the evening. It's very kid friendly during the day, but things do get a little more adult at night. Um, it's a heavy costuming cosplay convention. It's amazing uh-huh. costuming work. People are out um, all the time showing off their costumes, and that's something I used to be involved in, but I've I've since retired from the from the costuming community. Um, but yeah, it's a really fantastic convention, and sounds um, cool. I I wish that I had I wish that we had had this conversation a year ago because last year my big guests were Michael Frith. Um, Catherine Mullen and, and Karen Prell from Fraggle Rock.
0: Uh-huh. We
2: celebrated the 30th anniversary of Fraggle Rock and had just a, a phenomenal time. They're wonderful, wonderful people, and and really appreciated the convention and were really cool to the fans. Um, you know, we we got Red and Moki uh, down from Henson. I, uh-huh. I managed to get Red and Moki down, so they were in the Red and Moki were in the parade in the back of a Corvette and posed for pictures with fans. Fans were crying. I mean, it was, oh, that's great. it was, it was, it was really magical. Yeah. They had video of the last day of shooting a Fraggle rock, not mm-hmm. a dry eye in the house. Um, yeah. you know, and it was, um, that was, you know, that took place shortly after we lost Jerry Nelson. Uh, and so that was seeing him in the yeah. video was very touching for a lot of people, um, myself included. So
0: yeah. Um,
2: you know, I, I'm only responsible for a very small part of the convention, but it's a very, I think, wonderful part of the convention that other isn't an experience you get at other conventions um, sounds very cool
1: yeah i i think the basis of dragon con is that enc- it encourages every fan to fully embrace the things that they love mm-hmm. in an environment where everybody appreciates everybody else's fandoms yeah Uh, it's, it's just, it's such a positive and fun atmosphere and literally anything that you're into, you're going to be able to find there Mm -hmm. and you'll meet,
2: you'll meet the people who the other people that are into it, just like you. And you'll make some of the best friends you've ever made, you know, from all over the world. So it's going to be about, we're projected about 62,000 people this year, um, which is a, I think last year was 55. Uh, so yeah, we're, it's big. Big convention. It's a hotel convention. It's not a convention center convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's twenty four seven. You know, it it goes on nonstop for officially for four days, but unofficially for six, and
3: <laughs> uh, and counting. And counting.
2: Um, oh yeah, man! Wednesday is the new Thursday.
3: Uh, <laughs> so you'll send me a, a bunch of information about it. Sure, I'd be Great. Happy to.
1: absolutely. Uh, Bo can send you information about the puppetry track and I can send you stuff about uh the American Sci Fi classics track uh is the one that I do panels with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'll I did toy panels last year and this year I've got all kinds of other stuff brewing. I'm dangerously close to having uh too much on my plate. Welcome to my world in and, and, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get anywhere near where Bo's <sighs> at right now. Okay. But uh but yeah it's a great time and we definitely uh we 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 can talk further about absolutely. uh Dragon Con absolutely great
2: This has been really well, special, awesome. Tim thank you so much I I I wish we had more time I have I I I, I didn't want to get too deep into the puppet nerding uh because <laughs> so I knew we had I knew we had a lot to cover um right. but I would love to to talk again someday
3: Sure call me Yeah absolutely I can this sculpt has been Luckily fantastic. I can sculpt and talk at the same time <laughs> I've been sculpting. Oh, that's beautiful. I have been sculpting the whole time we've been talking pretty much. That's great.
1: That kind of makes this twice as awesome as it already was. <laughs> the the creative process was happening as we were speaking.
3: Yeah. Well, so Doc, so uh, King Tufus's head is almost done. So
1: so there'll be a little bit of the Needless Things podcast right. in King Tufus. You bet. That's beautiful. Tim, thank you so much for coming on. We sure. really appreciate it. Sure,
3: thank you for having me.
1: And we're going to call that a wrap. That was great. That was great. I, I would definitely... Is that a on
3: wrap, uh... or is just this... <laughs> <laughs>
1: That is a Klingon wrap. <laughs> that was awesome! I, I had a Sectars commercial, like the Boglins one that I threw in at the beginning, but the the audio was just so bad on it. It was there was this horrible hissing that would have blown you guys' ears out. I don't want to abuse my listeners like that because you know I love you guys. Um, I've been trying a new recording system called Pamela for the podcasts, and it's better and worse than a Malto, which is what I was using before. Uh I don't sound as great, but everybody else sounds better, so we're rather than me sounding great and everybody else sounding tinny and echoey, now everybody else sounds there's no no tinniness or echo on people, but I don't sound as good. So we're in kind of a middle of the, the road crappy, which I can deal with middle of the road crappy if if that's what I've got. Uh but I, I have to pay for this thing, so I don't know, man. Uh, I'm still trying to decide before my trial runs out. Lots more exciting podcasts coming up. I have more toy stuff. I have, hopefully, a local legend that I'll be able to get on here soon. I've been talking to him. Uh, I'm lining stuff up, people. Uh, Lots more is going to be happening. Uh, Big announcements coming soon, and I hate the big announcements coming soon announcement, but now I understand why people do it, because you can't... You know, I, I don't want to announce crazy things and then they don't happen. Uh, and, and you know, that does happen sometimes. But anyway, remember iTunes and Stitcher for the Needless Things podcast. Please visit needlessthingssite.com. Please visit totems, T-O-T-I-M-S dot com. And, of course, keep an eye on Dragon Con, the puppetry track, the American sci-fi classics track. Awesome stuff. I love you guys.